All right, hey, welcome everybody uh, to another edition of Joe Talks. This is Sergeant First Class Nathan Hutchison here from Aqua LA, the Army Entertainment Office. I am here today with recently retired Sergeant First Class Jesse Naputi. Uh, he is coming to us from right around the Fort Irwin, California area. Uh, like I said, just, just retired. Uh, he was a Black Hawk crew chief. Uh, now venturing out into the to the civilian world for the first time in 22 years uh, but he is going to spend a little bit of time talking about his 22-year career and how that how that started and how that culminated and and just the 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 interesting things in between there so with that said uh, mr. Naputi please take it away Hey, how you doing, everybody? Um, yeah, I'm I'm uh, Jesse Naputi. I'm at a I'm civilian now, freshly retired, couple of months uh, at most. Um, I'm living the American dream, and it's because of the military and my brother Joe Naputi, who is a, uh, a retired Air Force. Uh, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be at the position I am now. Uh, I just sold one of my houses. I was able to buy a, buy two, three houses because of the military. Uh, my wife, my kids, they're great kids. I'm, like I said, living the American dream. And it because, and it's all because of the military and how I grew up. Um, as a young boy, probably about eight or nine is when I realized that I wanted to either be a uh, military or a police officer. Yeah, and I say that because um, a police officer, I'd, I'd see him, I'd see that person with his uniform and arresting a guy, a bad person, um, because he, because uh, yeah, an, another person was fighting with a military person. And then I saw that military person and how he was standing up to, uh, standing up to, a to a person who was doing something bad and he too was in uniform and I was like wow I want to be a I want to be a, either a police officer or um, uh, a soldier and and plus my grandmother at the time told me nothing but good things about the military and and what it did for our island I've never heard her say anything negative or anything about the military is always something positive and I always remember that and what the military and this great nation has done for uh, my island, Guam. And that's where I'm from. Um, of course, growing up, uh, uh, you know, things happen, uh, families separate. And I was one of those unfortunate um, uh, sons who, who grew up with uh, a single mom who's trying to raise six kids. And she did a great job, I think. Other people might think otherwise, but you know, Frankly, I don't care. My mom, she raised us, and look where I'm at uh, because of her, and I love her. Um, she just recently passed away, God rest her soul, and I thank her a lot for for a lot that I have, that I have, and um, and what she instilled in my older siblings who taught me how to be a man uh, when my dad um, when they were separated. Okay, so, you know, like I said, my brother, my sisters, they played an important role in my life uh, growing up. 
and um, it was hard, but my mom never stopped working. She always worked hard for her money and always did what she thought was best for us. And I thank her for that. And as I grew up, I, um, I realized, uh, shoots, I came, I think I was, I came back, I go back and forth to Guam, but the, the last time I came from Guam, I was 15. Uh, I was going to high school. It was my first year as a ninth grader. I was coming in and I seen some really, really messed up stuff. And it was my introduction to uh, uh, gangs at that time. At that point, because I saw guys with axes in their back and other people chasing after them with axes and then cops chasing after them, I didn't want to be that person. I, find, I realized at that point that, hey, I need to watch what I do so that I'm not that person or I'm not getting arrested because my goal, and I didn't forget, was to be a soldier or a cop, okay? And if I did any of those things, I'm sure it would be a disqualifier. I didn't know that at the time. All I know is they were positive people and I need to be a positive person to be that, okay? And, and the other thing, being raised by my grandmother, uh, my sisters, you know, and sometimes a mom and, and my dad, I would, um, I would realize that, hey, I gotta, I gotta make sure that whatever I do, I gotta think about how much of a hypocrite I would be to my future family or for my future kids. You know, if I was to get arrested, if I tell them, hey, don't get arrested, that's not right. And there I was at their, that same age and I got arrested. So whatever I did on the streets, I had to make sure before I did it, uh, what the repercussions was and whether I was gonna, whether I was gonna be a hypocrite to my, to my future family, my future kids. And to this day, I'm not, I'm not a hypocrite. When I tell my boy, don't get arrested, it's because I didn't get arrested. Don't, you know, um, do drugs, you know, or get caught or whatever, whatever it is, it's because I didn't do it. Because if I did it, I wouldn't be telling them, you know, I practice what I preach. And that's just, you know, I didn't even know it. It was like one of the traits in the military. Hey, practice what you preach, lead from the front, you know? So I've already was, I've already established a lot of that, that I've noticed that came from the military and our public servants the the the, the uh, police and the and the firefighters i see them and i and i mimic them you know and and it's important so if you're a public figure make sure that you're doing the right thing because kids at eight years old they're looking at you and that's what they're going to mimic okay so if you're doing that make sure that you're doing it in that you're doing something positive because the kids are going to remember that for the rest of their lives anyways uh, growing up, I made sure I didn't, I didn't do those things. When it, so when it came down to enlisting, and I enlisted during the first Gulf War, you know, it was, they just, they just, the ground war just started. And I went in there to recruiting center and I said, hey, I don't want to walk because I was out of shape, you know. And I don't, yeah, I don't want to walk. So get me in as fast as I can to go and serve my country and give back to this great nation 
like those who sacrificed or gave the ultimate sacrifice in World War II, World War I, and those who came before us, you know, and I, in particular, World War II, because my grandmother talked about that time period during um, a lot. And she said, you know, nothing but good things about um, what took place, you know, and the hardships that they had to endure. So, you know, because of that, I want to give back. When I joined the army, I'm like, you know what? I want to, I want to join the army, serve this great nation, the way those who sac gave the ultimate sacrifice during World War II for my island, and make sure that this great democracy, this great nation, continues forward, because that's what that ultimate sacrifice taught me. That I too have to give back to this country, this this liberty, this freedom. Everything that I have is is from those who pass and those who sacrificed, present, past, and the ultimate sacrifice. I have what I have because of them, and I found it personally my obligation to serve during the the Gulf War, and I did. Unfortunately. I missed the uh, war by 15 days. So, you know, I had to serve out my time. I served out my time, but guess what? You know, 9-11 uh, came around, 2001. I said, you know what, I'm gonna go back in. I'm going back in. I'm gonna go finish what we should have finished in the first Gulf War. You know, I don't know if that's political. I really don't care. I just wanna go back because my son was young at that time. I don't want him to grow up and be obligated, you know, because he might be like me. If he's if he's stubborn, he's going to be like me and want to join the the military and serve his country the way I did. I don't tell him to serve this uh, serve. I keep telling him, hey, I did it, so you don't have to do it, okay? But he doesn't say nothing. So I joined, I I reenlisted, and I came back in to serve our country a second time, just just so that my son don't have to, my future kids don't have to, or future or even uh, Star First Class Hutchinson's uh, kids don't have to. You know, this is this is me. This is, this is all I know. This is all I want. There's a reason why I want to do it. And I reenlisted, and then I decided I'm going to retire from this day on. And I did. I was my, when I reenlisted, I was backed by a beautiful wife, who, who even sacrificed. I remember a period where we were separated four years because of two deployments and then a deployment down to Central South America, four years, straight years, and then I come back and she still is there. She still, my kids are, are who they are because of her, but not to get off track. We'll get, we'll, we'll visit that story in, in a few minutes. Um, I reenlisted, I came back in, and me growing up in the streets, it really changed me from the little island boy that I was when I was younger to going in, growing up from ninth grade on the streets and, ha and having to, to, to deal with all these different people and, and, um, and you know, colorful, 
I don't, they, they were just really colorful and I had to adapt to my environment. Okay. I had to be things that I didn't want to be. I had to be mean. I had to be, I, yeah. If, if somebody says hi to you, you, you gotta like get in her face. Why are you saying hi to me? Because if you don't and you say hi back, that's like a sign of um, that's a, a, a sign of weakness and they'll take advantage of you from there on. Okay. And then, you know, being taken advantage of on the streets in California was either it was a matter of life or death. Okay. So that's, that's just the reality of everybody's life. But there's one thing, one goal I've never, uh, um, I never steered away from, and I always kept making sure I'm not a hypocrite to my future family. Okay. And making sure that, um, um, oh, shoot a hypocrite and making sure I didn't do nothing that would jeopardize me joining the military or even the um, uh, being a cop or a firefighter. Okay, these are these these were my goals. And so and it was hard during that time. And and anyways, back to 2001, I joined, uh, I came back in, I went to basic training twice, I started as an E1 both times. You know, and I coming back in 2001, I said, I want to retire as an E6. If I retire after that, uh, anything above that, I, I was blessed. You know, I was blessed to retire as a sergeant first class. Okay. And like I said, the military played a very beautiful role in where my family is now. My son don't have to worry about all you know the, the negative things from the streets he's been to good schools from fort um from fort campbell to fort bragg he's been to these dod schools that done nothing but wonderful work for uh my my kids and i want to thank them like i said the military dod they've done nothing but great things for my family my wife she we made sure we lived uh, to where she didn't have to work and our and the military did that for us. You know, we kept our our finances at a, a certain state and she didn't have to work. She raised my kids. She was with my daughter. My son used to go to daycare. My son was nine or 10 years old before we came back into or before I came back into the military. And so he had to go to daycare. He had to he had to go to school at six in the morning because my wife had to go to work. I had to go to work and sit there for an hour at the office for an hour just to go to school. And he would sit there and every time we left him, he would cry. Okay. So these things played, you know, a significant at being a civilian, it played a significant um, negative. Uh, it just it was it was just hard for me to see my son go through that as a civilian. But when I joined the military and all the programs that they had, from you know um, the daycare and all that, it was it was just it was just lovely. And then the fact that my wife didn't have to work because because of the military. Yeah, I mean, you can see where this came from. And it was, you know, going through the military, I mean, joining I me, mean, my life through the military was hard. It was, you know, like any other job, it's what you make of it. So, and that's basically what I did. I had to live and learn how 
to adapt to the military because my street my street knowledge was not part of the military so i had to change and guess what i went from an e0 to an e7 e, despite having a you know a street a street attitude that's how forgiving the military is for you you know they give you room to adapt to change they don't look at you any different they want to see performance and a a a positive person and and that's what happened you know that's my success and and growing and going through the military you know i've always wondered you know this repetitive training and all that i'm like wow we're repetitive why repetitive training and then uh shoots in uh 2000 I won't I won't say the year, but I went to what we call Fob Shank, uh, Rocket City. A lot of people know about that. And and it was there that I re realized and that was like 15, like 10 years, 10, 12 years after joining. I realized why the repetitive training is because, you know, there's it was it. We had a rocket attack. I ran. I I ducked like I was supposed to, but you can hear that whistle, that incoming indirect fire coming in. The whistle's coming, it's getting louder and closer and louder. And then all you're praying is, you know, hopefully it doesn't land where you're at. Well, it did. And it landed probably about 10 meters away from my location. Luckily I was in, you know, I was down covered um, and an explosion popped, boom. Um, a gym got hit. There's a soldier in there. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. All I saw was fire and then the door blown out of that one uh, a gym, black smoke. Literally what you see in, um, in the movies where it's just a black smoke door. And then the smoke doesn't come out. It just stays there, just swirling around. I'm like, whoa. And then right when I saw that, I'm like, I started running towards there to run in there to make sure there was no soldiers in there, not, not caring about my, my own life. And then I saw, I looked to the left and I saw a bunker. And then I ran into the bunker and I ran in there and said, hey, there's, um, the uh, gym just got hit. I need somebody to be a, you know, buddy assist. One person came out, out of probably 60 to 80, 80 soldiers that were in that bunker. It was like, it was cramped tight, cramped tight, probably more cramped tight with soldiers. One soldier appeared. He was an engineer, specialist Smith. I remember him, redheaded, you know, young guy, probably in his mid 25s. And we both, I said, I will. And we both ran towards that that uh, smoke-filled door. I pierced that door, and right before it pierced, I see Smith stop. And then when I got in, the door was smoke. There was like it was filled with smoke. And then I dropped to my, uh, I dropped to my knees. I dropped to my stomach like I was trained to do. And sure enough, that four, that four inches of of air or where you can see and there's no smoke, it, it it exists, okay? So that's where I came down. I was looking, I was looking around. I had to hold my breath because it was a rocket and that 
thing was just choking me real bad. So, you know, being an Islander and experienced uh, um, swimmer and I held my breath, I can hold my, hold my breath for at least two minutes. I looked around, I saw a light and I started walking towards that light, just feeling around because you can't see nothing. Okay, and feeling around. And then finally I felt, um, I tapped a guy's shoe and then anyways, I jumped up because I was running out of air and I did a reverse azimuth and went straight to the door and I took a, a deep breath and I, you know, right when I found that body, I, I knew that I had to yell for help, yell for medics, medic, medic, medic. That's the first thing you do, okay? And then I told him, hey man, go get a medic. Um, and uh, Smith, because he was, he knew I was in there and I'm, I'm glad he knew I was in there because if I was to die in there, at least he knew I was in there. And that was that, and I didn't mind that he was there. I held, I turned around, held my breath, went back in, did a totally, you know, the same exact direction, but opposite. And I went back to that soldier. By the time I got to him, it kind of cleared up, but it was still smoky. I started doing, I started feeling for any blood or anything because I, I still couldn't see. And then finally I can see, and then I looked and I saw that he was like cut towards his inner thighs. And I started to remove, um, he had a short time, started to, to, to make sure that there's nothing going on. I had to stop again, run back out and tell uh, uh, Smith, Smith, call for a medic and go get me a, a uh, some kind of vehicle, okay? So I turned around. I didn't know he was going to come back with the gator, but he did. He came back with the gator. So I went back, went, over, went in there, and it started clearing up. And then that's when a uh, um, uh, infantry guy, he was a, uh, shoot, oh, shoot, a nurse. No, no. Anyways, he, he was a, one of those special uh, uh, special infantry guys, and he came in, and he was a medic, and he asked me what was going on, and and because he was there, I I don't know what happened. I just stared at the at the soldier because he had a big hole in the, in his forehead. I thought he was done. He was gone, you know, and um, and. And it took me a couple of seconds to to gather myself and respond to him and let him know that hey, uh, we got a lot of um, a lot of uh, his the front of his body was just totally covered in lacerations and everything, um, but the back of his body didn't have any and and that's what I was uh, trying to tell him. And then his his arms mangled. I said his arms mangled, but I thought coming down here he might have had uh, uh, blood coming out or he was. He was bleeding out from his vital work, uh, um, shoots blood vessel in his inner thigh. And, and that's where I was trying to set a tourniquet. So what that soldier did was that infantryman um, uh, put a tourniquet, medic put a tourniquet around his arm. And then I came back out and I had to breathe again. Now I can start breathing, but I went back in there, uh, asked people, hey, clear the way so that there's a path Again, my training, um, making sure that the, the, the soldier was not bleeding. Again, my training, making sure that the soldier was breathing. Again, my training. And I didn't think about it. It just went right automatic because of the 
the the constant training that we do now i know now i i know why all i knew is that i had to do this training and i did it because i was told to and i knew it was going to come into into use at one time and sure enough i pulled out that toolbox and i knew what to do even even these and i was an older older uh, soldier at the time these young guys were coming in and they were taking your time i go hey come on let's go we got to get this guy out of here you know hurry up hey man go put that on there it's time to move him we got to move him he's good he's not there's nothing wrong with him we got to move him get him to the hospital you know so i had to take charge you know because the the, the medic guys were like really going we're going through all the steps that i already took so I had to take charge and tell them, hey, no, come on, let's let's do this. And then we put them on, we put them on, uh, on a, uh, um, ah, shoot, uh, I even forgot the terms. That's so. Anyways, uh, uh, we put them on a stretcher, and then um, everybody was trying to lift it different. Oh, no, 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 no. Ready, set, prepare. We're gonna lift in two. Prepare to lift. One, two, lift. And we we came into synchronization. We made sure that we were doing what we were taught. Okay. And somebody had to take charge because, you know, they were trying to figure it out too. A lot of these medics were, it's it was their first time. And, you know, somebody had to take charge. So I had to get myself back into the action and take and do what I was trained to do. And, and that's what I did. I took him. We got up all in, in, in uh, uh, at the same time. There's a path all the way to the gator that was waiting for him because I told people to do that. But again, part of the training. We got to the gator, put the soldier in the gator. They, won't, they were asking if I wanted to go. And I'm like, no, you, you professionals, you got this. Take over. Make sure he gets to the, to the um, aid station. They took him to row two. Uh, right now, he's uh, he's retired medic uh, medically, Purple Heart, um, with his family, and going to school so that he can give his family a better life. And uh, yeah, it was because of her. It's not because of me. It's because of the training that I was taught. You know, and and that's it. That's that's. That's that's the army. That's the military. Not only am I living the American dream, I was able to do my purpose, and that was to help that soldier at that time. It took twenty years, fifteen years, but that that was my purpose. Okay, I mean, I I think I mean I did a lot of things. Um, Colonel Francis, General Francis, right now, you know, uh, is. I went to 10th Mountain my first time at 10th Mountain. And he asked me, hey, 10th Mountain haven't uh, never had in the past 10 years, haven't had a, a PMI, a phase maintenance inspection. Okay, that's a major maintenance. That's like a 460 hour uh, maintenance. That's like ripping the helicopter apart, not to change. Like I said, I'm a helicopter mechanic. Rip it apart and put it back together. I'm like, not a problem. And we were doing phase maintenance in, in below army standards. You know, that's because of the, the type and quality of, of soldiers that come into the army. I'm, I'm but one. There's even better soldiers like Sergeant First Class Hutchinson and other soldiers that came who are 
who are better soldiers than I am, you know, and that's, that's, that's the beauty of it. I don't, I don't know what to say. Well, um, but, you're, oh. you're giving, you're giving yourself far too little credit, but to, to change gears a little bit. So you, you rejoined after 9-11. Um, did you, did you join as a, as a, uh, well, that, that would be a helicopter repairman, right? Or a, a repair, right. Yeah. You know. Uh, is that what your original MOS was when you when you joined the Gulf? No. Gulf? I was a combat arms. Uh, I was a tanker. Okay. You know, I I was I came in. I I, I served with the O one ninety seventh Brigade, and then it became a third uh, third Brigade twenty fourth Infantry, and now it's three uh, ID. Um, that was my original. Um, unit and then i was stationed in korea during that time and serve um, korea and team spirit um and um and oh uh and uh, coming to, uh you know talking about team spirit and serving korea um shoots soldiers like me remember previous soldiers when i was young i remember soldiers um you know at that time and why they joined you know and and all i can think about was nothing but good things about the soldiers that i encountered growing up in the islands okay so me as a soldier when they when you're when you're superior or you're uh, supervisors and, and people hiring and you say that you're an ambassador to the military and to this great nation. It's a true fact because I remember as a young uh, lad that, um, you know, soldiers were really, really nice to me and that's what made me want to join. And that's, and, and all the things that they did from curing, you know, like I said, all this, the education, the infrastructure, the, the, uh, the uh, curing of all the diseases that we had, uh, being nice to me and, and showing nothing but positive things. That, what, that's what influenced me to join. So when I went to war and I had like um, a few combat tours or, and multiple overseas tours, wherever I went, I made sure that I represented the U.S. and the U.S. Army positively, because that's what that's what everybody talk about. Okay, I've met a lot of Af Afghan people, Romanian people, Korean people, and how they talk from their experience positive about the military, and I wanted to be the same way. We are we are great because because of that, and people know that. Yes, yes, there's like hiccups here and there, but I've never experienced it. And Guam is a Guam at the time was was nothing but military. One of my best friends, Rex Rob, he's he comes from a military family, and they were nothing but um, uh, nice to me, you know, and. The, you know, as a young person, you, this is what you remember. And so when we go and how we act towards 
the international community that reflects and that's gonna that's gonna to me in my opinion that's gonna affect how they look to us i mean at us when they get older yeah i don't know if that makes sense yeah yeah um so um let's talk about your your career overall so once you got to uh 2001 and you decided to come back in uh what was your decision on on choosing an MOS at that time? Well, I I actually I came back in in 2003, but I've been I had to convince from 2001 to 2003 I had to convince my wife to let me join. That was that was the that was the the factor, <laughs> the deciding factor of me and real listing. Nine months of being unemployed. Okay. Uh, during that time, you know, and seeing my wife support me and my family, it, it really took a toll on me. And I, I had to convince her in every way possible, you know, that, hey, you know, I can't, I got to do this. And so she allowed me to join in 2003. And then when I came in, um, when I was, uh, okay, just to back up in, in Korea, I'll, uh, I'll lie in my foxhole or on the tank or, you know, whatever duty I am. And, and guess who, guess how I see up ahead flying helicopters. And then when I talk to them, they're like, all oh, nice and warm. And, and I'm like, wow, I want to do that. And, uh, and then 2003 rolled around, I reenlisted and I said, you know what? I want to be a helicopter mechanic, you know? Uh, because I knew that it was a good career field and I'm very good with my hands. I'm mechanically inclined. I scored well in the ASVAB and, um, I, and I found out that I'm actually really good with my hands. So I went that route and I said, okay, I want to be a helicopter mechanic. They showed me the Chinook. I'm like, oh no, you see how short I am. You see how big that was? You know, climbing up and down. I was I was 37 years old at the time when I came back in, you know, and and I'm like, no, I'm too old to be going up and down. But um, then they showed me the the uh, Kiowa. No, nah, that's too small. They're gonna laugh at me and call me. Uh, anyways, I won't I won't get into MOS bashing. And then I saw, uh, um, you know, the Blackhawk and. And my platoon sergeant at the time, uh, or, you know, he was a, uh, a E7 at the time. He goes, yeah, he was an old 160 guy. And he told me about the Black Hawk. It was, it was perfect. I'm like, yeah, I like it. You know, so I, I enlisted as a Black Hawk mechanic and, and the rest is his, uh, history. You know, I can tear that bad boy apart and put it right back together and, and watch it fly. I've never had any incidents, no accidents. Uh, nothing. Everything I've done, I have over 80 phases. A lot of people are going to say, "Oh, that's that's impossible." Well, we were we were turning phases between uh, PMI ones and PMI twos, which are like 450, 460 hour each. Okay, and it by army standards, it's like it should take you no more than like 30 days. We're doing it in record time without skipping any um, inspections. It's just about 
doing the aircraft. You know, we're doing it in seven days, 14 days. Okay. And it's knowing your aircraft. If you know what to do in the aircraft and what takes the longest, of course, you're going to knock that out. You have one to, you know, one to 10, for example, one to 10. Okay. As long as you do every one of those numbers, you are good. And it's, it's just like, you know, instead of like, for example, de-paneling or taking off certain panels, you know, every step when you get to it, you de-panel it on the first day, wash the aircraft, and then you'll see more cracks. If you don't and you, you de-panel and the aircraft is dirty, it's just an example, you're not going to see fine cracks that will down the aircraft in the future. So these are, you know, things that as a mechanic or as a supervisor, you have to take, uh, think about and other stuff. So I, I learned the aircraft back, um, back, and, you know, like, like nothing. And, you know, I was, I was teaching guys how to do it and how to knock it out. And they took it over because a lot of them had real leadership qualities that would, would, um, you know, um, have guys 12 hours of work. We're, we're in Afghanistan. We do pure 12 hours of work and then go relax and then do it all over. And we do it for a year. We do it for, and we're knocking out phases, two phases a month. Yeah. Okay. So can you, uh, can you explain what the difference is between a repair or repairman and what it takes to become a crew chief. Yeah. Um, um, okay. A crew chief, there's, there's like, you're going to hear in the aviation world between a crew chief and a maintenance person. Oh, I'm a maintenance person or I'm a maintenance guy. Or you're going to hear a crew chief. Oh, I'm a crew chief guy. Even though they're the same MOS, it, they're separate. And the reason why I say that is because crew chiefs they maintain the bird okay but they also crew the bird they prep the bird they crew it they do a lot of really extraordinary things they're the ones that go outside the fob or go outside the gate they're the ones that know how, when not to shoot when to shoot um when to hoist a person when to ho uh when the lord that hoist uh uh, when to land in a tight confined space, you know, they're the, the backseat eyes of the pilots. And without them, the pilots can't land that aircraft in a tight situation. So yeah, that's your crew chief. They're doing amazing things. In the 160, they're the they're the they're the ones that send our customers out. Okay. And they're the ones that say yes, go or not go because it's unsafe. Okay, so it takes a lot. And it also takes them to know the aircraft and be a maintainer, okay? And, and yeah, they know how to be a maintainer to an extent and they can read. And if they had to be a mechanic and um, conduct a PMI, I'm sure they can do it. Just as much as the maintainers that claim to be maintainers or mechanics, they're the ones who who fix the aircraft and know what to do and how fast it can get done. Okay. It's all about, 
it's all about fixing the aircraft or crewing the aircraft not not because um i mean yes it's because it's our job but because it's a matter of life and death okay if you don't if you don't have a competent crew chief in the back it's going to be harder for the pilots to save that that soldier on the battlefield if you don't have a competent maintainer or mechanic uh okay who knows what he's doing it's a matter of life and death to get that aircraft in uh, to a fmc or fully mission capable state so that it can fly and not miss any missions that's required of us because either way the soldier that's waiting for that mail counts on that maintainer and that crew chief soldiers that are waiting to be um uh, uh medevaced out are waiting on that crew chief or that maintainer and 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 that's the beauty of our job we mean as a crew chief or as a mechanic my main focus is to make sure that that aircraft flies as a as a crew chief make sure that aircraft is fmc fully make uh, fully mission capable and then making sure that my pilots train back in the rear so they know how to fly that aircraft so when we go to combat they are capable of flying missions that are presented to us and then as a mechanic you know as a mechanic i make sure that we fix that aircraft within a timely manner so that it gets back into the fight and if a aircraft and i remember aircraft in 2008 it got shot down the tail boom was was torn off i mean it was shot off and they were gonna you know, you know like just give up on his aircraft i told the commander why are we gonna do that let's let's rebuild this aircraft and put it back in a fight and guess what happened they did that okay I, even though i was just an e5 at the time i didn't care that i was giving you know that i i gave this advice to the commander to the the first sergeant or to my my supervisor and they ran with it okay and we did we we brought this aircraft back we rebuilt that uh tail boom from scratch we got in depot level or higher level maintenance from corpus christi uh civilians to come out and re um uh, jig the tail boom to make sure the drive shafts are straight put it together and it flew on the next mission so so we never yeah so the way i uh you know kind of feel about it and you can tell me if i'm wrong is that uh, as a as a crew member and a crew chief uh you you have a, a little bit more of an attachment to the specific vehicle than a maintainer does or a repairer does uh, because you're going through you're going through several different vehicles as a uh, as a as a maintainer um, you're kind of you know you you've got that one baby uh, as as a crew crew chief right and that's uh you know you have an attachment to it uh, of a sort I would, yes I would think even more so than the pilots do in a, in, a, in a certain way you know, yes the, the pilot has the confidence that that uh, well, they have a confidence in their team that, you know, whoever, whoever maintained that vehicle is, has done an acceptable job. As a crew chief, you, 
you have an attachment to that vehicle and this is you know this is your baby and you're you're taking care of it um, so our our attachment um, me and you is that you know along with you know our paths colliding in in Germany and and you know maybe some other countries uh, uh, in in our deployment with 10th Mountain um, is that you know one of my favorite photos that I've taken since I've been in the Army for 17 years is uh, is the photo that I took of you with with your Blackhawk and I can't remember if that was in Germany or if that was in one of the other countries it was in Romania in Romania okay yeah yeah. Um, but that's still to this day, you know, out of 17 years, that's one of my favorite favorite photos that I've taken, uh, and I think it kind of it kind of captured the essence of a of a crew chief, um, you know, because that's that's your baby. That's your yeah. It is. It is, and and every crew chief has the same sentiment that whatever whatever aircraft they're in it's their baby and they know they have to get it up you know so we're out there you know medevacing whether it be a medevac mission or a transport mission or a delivery a combat uh, i mean a delivery tactical mission you know it's it's all about making sure that our aircraft is fmc and that soldier who's waiting for mail or to get picked up because it's their end of their tour or to get picked up because or get medevaced out we don't want it to be a maintenance reason why we can't go get them we need to get those soldiers back and that's always on our mind get them back to their family at the end of the tour get them back to um, uh, a medical team that can save their lives or just transport them to wherever they need to go. And that's just, that's, that's our life. That, that was our life. People call us fobbits, but you know, and we're, we're not, you know, at the front lines or whatever, but in, in actuality we are because we want to make sure that those who are on the front line receive every help possible, whether it be a cover fire, whether it be to get picked up, you know, um, it's, it, I don't know, I, I just keep repeating myself, but it's just, it's, it's really dear to us that we, we don't fail the mission because of maintenance or lack of training issues as crew chiefs, as supervisors, as platoon sergeants, and the sergeant major on down, commander on down, we make sure that, that we think about the, the customer so that we can deliver or pick up whenever possible. Life or death. Absolutely. So, uh... We've we've hit a few places, but over 22 years. So we got we got Korea in there. We've got Fort Bragg in there. You said Fort Campbell, uh, Fort Drum, um, and of course there's some deployments in there. So you said Afghanistan. Um, um, 
South America, uh, Central America. Okay. Um, yeah. Is there any is there any certain place that sticks out to you more? And of course, right now you uh, so you just retired out of uh, Fort Irwin, which if anybody is unaware, Fort Irwin is, is where the National Training Center is, and uh, aviation plays a big role in in that piece as well because you're you're training for deployments, right? It's a, it's basically a pre-deployment training, um, and so having all the assets there uh, in a realistic environment is, is essential. Um, is, is there any place that sticks out to you uh, any more than another as, as what, what, where you really felt like, oh, this is, this is the, you know, the quintessential army or that this is, you know, this is what really made me, uh, you know, in, enjoy it more or. Um, uh, well, well, I want to know every, every place that I've been to has always been equal. And the only reason why I say that is because I, I, I look at it as like when I went to South America, I was down there or Central America, I was down there and the work that they do down there, it's, it, it's like being deployed in Afghanistan, it's it's the up tempo so high, you know. You're constantly working, 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 okay. But every actually, Central America was uh, being stationed in in Central America was a very um, profound uh, experience for me because I saw the Air Force, I saw the the Marines, I saw. Uh, your elite groups and I and us regular army aviation guys come together and and work very very hard and be very close. We worked hard together and we we socialized together, you know, as one. And and during my time down there, it was it was. Um, it was an experience, like I said, you know, we we we're our Air Force was would go have a beer with them after working so many hours and, um, you know, yeah, things like that. It was really a tight knit group of people that worked hard and and played hard. And and that's, you know, that's what we did down there. We we helped a lot of the um, um, the the folks down there, med rep and. Um, did a lot of other stuff that, you know, made sure that it, it didn't come to our shores, you know, from drugs to human trafficking. This, it was just, it was just beautiful what we did down there. And, um, you know, and, and I was part of that. I was very honored to be a part of that, that elite group, I, I want to say. You know, because we did a lot of, we did a lot of togetherness down there, brotherhood. And in fact, after 10 years of, of constantly deploying um, uh, high temple, I went down there. It was like a recharge. Okay. It's like, if I didn't go down there, I was out of the army after 10 years. But I went down there recharge my batteries came back and finished my tour and did another uh tour or two 
um, in Afghanistan, Rocket City, and in uh, uh, Germany. So yeah, it was. I think that was that was the defining. That was my dis, dis, defining moment. Whether I wanted to stay in or continue my uh, my uh, military career. All right. So to to uh, get one last topic in there. Uh, one very important thing with the military is is the the work life balance, and you you've got a wife and and two children uh, that are that are very close to grown now, and uh, you know it's it's a success story. And do you have any any good insight or secrets or or you know something to espouse on that you know to to tell people this is you know you you obviously work hard, and you obviously got a uh, a lot of um, you know missions and deployments and everything else um, how do you how do you incorporate that into your family life and and make sure that that is as solid as it is well um, the family side was a really big factor I have, I have three kids all right my oldest son we uh, he went to Fort Campbell and uh, because of the program over there um, he was one, he was the first of, okay, he played football in Fort Campbell and he was, he was one of the first groups that made, that went to state in Fort Campbell high. That's the kind of, of, um, um, benefits that we had, you know, with DOD. My son went to state championships they were the first, that was the first year that they ever went to state championship. After that, they went another, I think, four, you know, but he experienced that. And for me to experience my son to to, to be a state champ was, was beautiful. I, you know, I got to experience that. Um, my son, uh, you know, he's successful right now. My Otis, my, uh, my middle son, because of the DOD and the, the military life. He he's uh, he has a um, a degree in computer science, and and he's joining the air force. You know, and and he and I keep telling him, "Don't join. Why are you joining?" He goes, "Well, it's something I want to do." So he's joining the air force, and he's a he's way better as a man than I was at his age. You know, and and I owe it to the the programs that the military had. You know, and then my daughter, she's following in the same educational pipeline as my 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 uh, son, uh, Stephen, and and she's doing great. Her grades are are amazing. She wants to be a doctor and and whatever. And 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 I'm going to be there. And the military is giving me all these advantages and um, uh, to to do that. And not only that, not only is my family uh, living you know, we're living that American dream. We had, we were away from our family for for 20 years. It's it's not until I got stationed here that I was able to live close to my, my family. My away family, you know, the other family members that, uh, military members that were experiencing like yours and, and mine that were, that experienced the military life, they had that, that togetherness. And every time they get together, it was, you know, we, it, 
we helped each other out. You know, we entertained each other be, uh, because of the the family um, that we were lacking. You know, and it 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 helped out. It 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 helped us our community, and and that was our military community. It helped us shape our families to where it is now. You know, it's I, if it wasn't for my military family uh, community, my my daughter won't be uh, wouldn't be a I don't think a great um, uh, person. You know, along with the help of my wife. You know, my my son, uh, before my middle, my uh, son, Stephen, it was 10 years. He was a he was a prisoner of my community. And that's before I joined the military. And, you know, we kept him in the house because how dangerous it was, dangerous it was in our neighborhood. So when I joined the military and I lived on post or live in a army military community, I didn't have to worry about that. I didn't have to worry about locking my door. I didn't have to worry about, you know, my, my kids biking my front yard. None of that, you know? So it was like, it was a very, it was it was something that I would never have words to say to the military and my my military community. You know that shows how grateful me and my wife was for them, and and you know the teachers, the DoD teachers that that to shape them to where they're at now. I don't know if that makes sense, but no, that's great. Yeah, I uh, I agree, and uh, you know the military family is is definitely uh, something that that everybody experiences and and you know appreciates because you know the people that are there for you when you're not there. Um, I, I probably felt that at, at Fort Drum more than anywhere else because we lived on post, um, and you know we were gone. Like, I was gone a lot. Uh, and I'm sure you were gone as lot a lot oh, yeah. uh, during that time as well. Um, but yeah, uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I think this was, uh, you know, a, a great snippet into into a a military life and a and a military success a success story. Uh, so I really appreciate your time. Do you, do you have any any other piece to say before we? close it out no my brother my brother joseph naputi retired air force if it wasn't for him i wouldn't have what i have and i thank him and i thank my mom because if it wasn't for her and and her determination to to raise six kids as a single mom all right i wouldn't be who i am well thank you for your time and for the rest of you, thanks, thanks for, for joining us, and, and until next time, I'm out.